morning. Welcome to Horizon. My name is Ryan. I uh, direct the student ministry here. And from time to time, they come let me play in big church too. So it is uh, good to be with you this morning. And uh, I got to confess that that's a heavy song to start any morning with, isn't it? That is like a karate chop to the jugular. Painful. That especially as a dad, I think it's scientifically proven that you cannot listen to that song without feeling just massive amounts of guilt, right? Um, All I'm hearing is, the cat's in the cradle, you're a lousy dad. (laughs) Little boy blue, you're a terrible dad. Right? Like, that's all I'm hearing as masterfully as they played and uh, sang that song. That was all I was getting from it. Um, Because I have four kids at home, and I can relate with those first few verses about the tension of trying to figure out how to best use our resources of energy and time and money when it comes to the most important relationships in our life. And I can even relate now with the last couple of verses of that song because we, we have a teenager in our house for the first time ever. Um, anybody ever been there? Okay, so her room is in the basement. We call it the cave. Um, and if we don't see her for like two or three days, you know, we'll, we'll go down and we'll check on her um, and we'll be like, hey, sweetie. Uh, what do you think about like joining, you know, like the, the other five people that live under this roof? Uh, maybe we'll like watch TV or play a game or, you know, and it'll be like a horror movie noise will come out of that room sometimes. Okay. It'll be like, get out. <laughs> you know, Becky and I'll be like, ah, we'll scurry out of the room in fear. And uh, we know our little girl is still in there because a, a sweet little voice will always trail it. And it will say, unless you're going to Target or Starbucks. Right, because she's always down for Target or Starbucks. Or on a perfect day, she would like to go to Target in Beachmont that has a Starbucks, right? (laughs) Because that is even better. Um, So I certainly relate with the heaviness of that song. And and there are times, quite honestly, when I look at my family portrait, our family portrait, and I wish there were ways I could repaint some parts of it or some seasons. But I've got to balance that with the the reality of life, right? That we all have bosses and we have deadlines and we have mortgages and bills to pay. Um, And and it is tough to figure out those decisions that you can literally walk into your office on a Monday morning and you just want 30 minutes of time to just dive into like the 130 emails maybe that came in over the weekend. And you get there and there's already a line of people kind of waiting to meet with you, right? And it's all good stuff, but you got to make decisions and you got to give answers And then you get through that and you're kind of painted a little bit more into the corner. It's like 9.05 on Monday. And then you check your voicemail and you're like, oh, I got two or three voicemails. And that's more people needing things. And you're you're painted a little more in the corner and almost on the keyboard now. And and then you wade into your emails. And by the time it's 9.25, you are completely painted into this relational corner. Or maybe you're at home, Okay. And you guys know this, that children have what I call bathroom radar, right? Where you just need three minutes of privacy because nature has called. And you go to the bathroom and and somehow my kids know they can be in the backyard, they can be upstairs. It doesn't matter. Um, Our four-year-old is going to come on a dead sprint for that bathroom door. And it's going to be, you know, mommy or daddy. And he's going to need like Kool-Aid or help with the computer or his brother punched him. And somehow I'm the answer to his problems. 
And then it's not even like being painted in a corner. It's like he's taking a three-gallon bucket of paint and just pouring it under the door. And I'm like up on the toilet, you know, and there's a snake on the floor kind of feeling. Well, relationships can do that, right? And if you're like me, your wild and crazy fantasy life at about my age, you know, early 40s, becomes thinking about 30 minutes of uninterrupted silence, Right? You're like, oh yeah, that'd be hot. Right? Like that, that is what your wild and crazy fantasy life becomes. Well, could there be a better way? I guess is what we're going to look at today. Could there be a better way than the, the status quo of uh, pouring out onto the people we love the most? Whatever's in our bucket at any given time. Maybe you get a little bit. Maybe you get a lot if you catch me early in the morning. Man, kids are expensive. Right? Like, is there a better way? When we, we look at our family portrait, and maybe we're not quite happy, is there a way that God could repaint it? And I think the answer is yes. And I think that God wants us to have healthy family portraits. They're never going to be perfect, right? Never. Um, but are they trending more towards health or, or more towards brokenness? I, I think God wants us to have healthy family portraits. So we're going to look at a family today um, out of the Old Testament, a book called Ruth. And it is the family of uh, Naomi, who's the mom, and Elimelech, who's the dad. Um, And at different points, their family portrait is going to be very broken. But God is going to use three unique ways that he will start to repaint their family portrait. And at first, their family portrait is going to be great, okay? It's the Naomi, Elimelech, they have two teenage sons. Things are going well. You know, it'd be like that beach family portrait. They're all wearing khakis and white shirts and smiling. And, um, but then a famine strikes Judah. Okay, so they have to move their whole family to Moab. All right, and the family portrait's starting to look a little different. And then things go terribly. Elimelech, the dad, dies almost upon arrival. And you imagine Naomi's looking at that picture and saying, this is not what I signed up for. Her boys grow and they marry Moabite wives and for a moment things are looking a little better. And then the floor falls out and both of her sons die. We're not told how or why, we just are told that they pass away. And, and now you know for sure Naomi is looking at that family portrait and the, the idea of her and Elimelech going, growing old and gray together is never going to happen. There's never going to be grandchildren scurrying around her ankles Right, like it's lost, and, and she puts it so poetically here in Ruth one twenty. Her name is Naomi, which means pleasantness, and she says, Do not call me Naomi, call me Mara, for the Almighty has dealt very bitterly with me. Mara means bitter. I went out full, and the Lord has brought me home again empty. And I love the poetry of that. I went out full, and now I'm empty. Becky got me uh, tickets to see Les Mis um, this past Christmas at the Aronoff. So we went this past Tuesday. And uh, it was awesome, of course, if you've ever been. But there's a character named Fontaine, and she's a young mother, right? And um, she's single, and she's poor. She works in a uh, factory just to pay enough money for these corrupt intakers to take care of her daughter. And she gets fired and thrown into the streets. And she has to resort to prostitution And she's getting sicker and sicker. And she sings what I would say is her signature song called I Dream a Dream. And don't worry, I'm not going to sing it to you. Um, (laughs) But the the opening lines of it are, are haunting, or some of the lines of it. It says, but there are dreams that cannot be, 
And there are storms we cannot weather. I had a dream my life would be so different from this hell I'm living. So different now from what it seemed. Now life has killed the dream I dreamed. And as I heard Fontaine sing that song, I thought of Naomi. (laughs) I thought, man, that had to have been how she was feeling. And I wonder, have you ever been there? Have you ever been so painted into the corner by broken relationships? Maybe it was a marriage that didn't work out. Maybe it's a a current broken relationship with an adult child. Or or have you ever been so painted in the corner by the uh, pressure of your relationships? I know there's families in our church who are raising special needs children, and that is so much pressure. Or, Or maybe you're like me and you're part of this sandwich generation where you're caring for children while caring for aging parents of your own. There's a lot of pressure there. And the question becomes, well, what are we going to do when we're in those corners? Let's see what Naomi does. So again, she is cornered, completely, completely broken. The, the dream is gone. And Ruth 1.7, it says, Therefore she went out from the place where she was and her two daughters-in-law with her, and they went on the way to the return to the land of Judah. She's going to make a really critical decision here. When she's in that corner... Um, what I didn't tell you is God had really told them not to leave Judah during the famine, that he didn't want them to go to Moab, but the family chose to. Um, so in her taking a step back towards Judah, she is really taking a step back towards God. And that is the first way we can begin to repaint our family portraits, is to take a step towards God no matter how small. No matter what Moab you find yourself off in right now or what corner you've been painted into relationally, the first step is to take a small step out of it towards God. And you don't have to get right with Jesus before you take that step, right? Like the getting right with God happens in the movement, in the tiny little steps. And as we look at Naomi, her life is a series of these small brush strokes like just as like Mark was painting up here, when you see the first one or the second one, you're like, what in the world is that going to be? And, and then eventually it's like, oh, well, that is Naomi's life. It's a series of small brush strokes, small steps of faith. And we love that here at Horizon. That's one of the reasons why we exist is we love being a part of people taking small steps along their faith journey. And it's even sort of written into our name, Horizon, the idea if you are walking towards the horizon, it sort of keeps moving, and there's always more steps to take, more adventures along the way, more things to learn. And we love being a part of that with you um, here at Horizon. Because small brushstrokes add up to masterpieces. And it's never quick. I don't know if you guys know this, but the Mona Lisa, um, one of the most famous paintings ever, it took 12 years... um, to finish the lips (laughs) from beginning to end, 12 years, because he wanted it to be perfect. And I wonder for you, what what is your next small step in the journey? Wherever you're at, whether you're early on or late, what's the next small step for you? Well, before they depart, Naomi's going to do something interesting here, okay? So she's heading back to Judah with her daughter-in-laws. She's going to say, turn back, my daughter's, Why will you go with me? Are there still sons in my womb that may be your husbands? So she's saying, hey, I know the family portrait for you guys has changed too. Um, Why don't you just go back to your birth families and maybe you can remarry? 
And one of the daughter-in-laws takes her up on it, and she pieces out quickly. And the other, Ruth, says, never. Like, imagine that. I am never leaving my mother-in-law. Like, she is staying. And uh, it, is, it is honestly... Right, fellas? Yeah. Um, it is honestly one of the most important decisions of all time, we'll see. And her response is poetic, and you've heard it at weddings. In Ruth 1.16, she says, Entreat me not to leave you, or to turn back from following after you. For wherever you go, I will go, and wherever you lodge, I will lodge. Your people shall be my people, and your God my God. Where you die, I will die, and there I will be buried. The Lord do so to me, and more also, if anything but death parts you and me. And what she's saying, basically, she's saying, Hey, Naomi, you are one of the few people that I am willing to pour it all out for, relationally. And she is certainly going to pour out her energy. We're going to see that. Um, I'm going to pour out my time for this relationship. You're going to get it all. And I'm a widow, but whatever, whatever resource of money I might have, I'm willing to pour out for you. And that brings us to our second way to repaint your family portrait is to begin to pour yourself out onto a few. And if you're a people pleaser like me, you're going to want to do this to everybody, right? Because like, you want everybody to be happy. But you can't do it for everybody. You just can't. There's only so much in your buckets. And the other caveat is you have to decide today who's on that short list of people. Right? Like Ruth, I think, was making a vow on the front end, knowing that there were going to be pain points ahead where she might opt out. So she makes this vow to her mother-in-law because it's going to embolden her for future decisions. Have you ever done that? Like, have you ever had a big home remodel coming up or maybe a cross-country move or job change, and you knew there was going to be some pain points ahead, right? So you made a vow on the front end where you're like, hey, you know what? No matter what, during this home remodel, we're not getting divorced, right? Like, you just put a stake in the ground and line in the sand. Um, a few years back, Becky and I were in Charleston, South Carolina, celebrating an anniversary, and we wound up in one of those uh, vacation uh, seminars, right? Have any of you guys ever been to that? They supposedly give you free tickets and stuff. And um, if, if you ever want to see a master's level class at peer pressure, um, head to one of those. All right. Because there's, there's videos, there's testimonials. We did role playing, kid you not. Um, there's a puppet show. Okay. I'm kidding about that one. There was no puppet show. Um, and halfway through, you're starting to be like, you know what? We only have like $500 in our bank account, but we'd be stupid not to do this. <laughs> Like $10,000 for a lifetime of vacations twice a year? Um, oh, thankfully, we had made a vow in the car that day driving there that, hey, no matter what they say, we're going to say no. If they offer us free vacations, we're going to say no. Because <laughs> um, I didn't trust them, let's be honest. Um, and we said no, like 35 times in a row. We said no, and they brought in the new boss, and they brought in the other boss. And, and as we walked out of there, I was like, I am so glad we decided to say no. Because life is like that. Sometimes you've got to decide on the front end something that would embolden you as you move forward. And really what pouring out looks like is really dying to yourself. That'd be another way to think of it. Like, who are the few people in my life that I'm going to die to my own first preference when it comes to how I'm going to spend my energy? I'm going to die to my own first preference with my time and with my money. And dying to yourself is never fun. It's implied in the fact that dying is in the phrase, Right? 
Here's an example in the real world. Okay, it's uh, a couple weeks from now. It's early April. It's like an 81 degree day, and it's beautiful. Okay, and your buddy texts you, and he's like, "Hey, I got a cart for 18 at the club. Let's hit them." And you're like, "You know what? I have not played my new driver yet." But then you think, and you're like, "Ah, my son has JV lacrosse." Ah, man, and you start doing the mental gymnastics, and you're like, "You know, last week he didn't even really get in much," and. They're playing, like, some school I've never even heard of. And, ah, you know what? He's on my list, though. He's on my very short list of people that I'm going to pour myself out for 99 out of 100 times. So, you know what? I think I'm going to have to play golf another time. Or, or, ladies, your husband is very excited about a date night, okay? And he knows that this new sci-fi movie that he's been talking about for months is coming out. Okay, and it's about like aliens or time travel or body snatching or something. But because you're normal, you don't like sci-fi movies, okay? Um, And that same night, the new rom-com is coming out, okay? And it has Mark Ruffalo or uh, Reese Witherspoon or Paul Rudd, you know, any of the holy trinity of rom-com actors. And you're like, I would so much rather go see that because you're normal, Um, but you pull out your list and you're like, ah, he's on my list. And I, marriage is about reciprocating. So I hope he'll reciprocate eventually. But tonight, this weekend, I'm going to go see the lame, really cool sci-fi movie, honey. Right? Like that is what it begins to look like as you pour yourself out for the people you love the most. And for Ruth, Naomi, somehow, some way was on that list. And today I would say, who's on your list? Like when you pull out that list, not just like, oh, my wife and my kids. But no, who are the real people on your list that you, were, you would literally pour out everything you had when you, you have to, life or death, but also when there's just basketball to play in the driveway instead of basketball to watch on the couch. <laughs> Sorry, personal story there. Um, Well, for Ruth and Naomi, the adventure is on, okay? And it is like a Thelma and Louise moment where they're heading back to Judah. You know, I'm picturing music and stuff, and it's going to be a lot of fun. And we're going to see the small brush strokes that they continue to both keep taking eventually add up to a masterpiece. And I'm going to invite my friend Mark back up on his stage, and he's going to continue working on the uh, family portrait that we started with. So Naomi returned. And Ruth the Moabitess, her daughter-in-law, with her, who returned from the country of Moab. Now they came to Bethlehem at the beginning of the barley harvest. So they're back in Judah. They're both widows. It's a very patriarchal society, so everything passed from male to male. So they're homeless, propertyless, they're hungry. Thankfully, it's the beginning of the barley harvest. It says in Ruth 2.1, it says, There was a relative of Naomi's husband, remember Elimelech, who passed away, a man of great wealth of the family of Elimelech. His name was Boaz. Okay, so here's where the bachelor kind of gets introduced to this story. I'll just call him Bachelor Bo, because that sounds more modern. Okay, so Bo is here. And Bo, we're going to find out, is a he's an aging landowner. So he's older than Ruth. Um, He has stayed during the famine. And God has amazingly blessed him that he's now wealthy. He has a whole lot of margin available. And he is what is called a kinsman redeemer for Ruth and Naomi. And I know kinsman redeemer sounds like a lame Christian band. You saw it like junior high camp, right? You're like, kinsman redeemer! Um, it's, it's not that. 
it was simply just an older male relative that could step in when a younger female relative was widowed, had never married, and had no male heirs to pass property onto. So he could step in and buy the land, and then the land would stay in the family. And if he's single and she's single, which probably is the case if she's a widow, um, and they like each other, they could marry and then have children that would keep the family line going also. So that's who Boaz is. And the verse continues. So Ruth, the Moabitess, said to Naomi, Please let me go to the field and glean heads of grain after him whose sight I may find favor. So gleaning, we've looked at a little bit in this series. It's basically as they're harvesting a field, whatever they drop, it was God's way of caring for people who were hungry. They could come and pick it all up and work eight hours and probably collect enough for food for the day. Uh, But there was sort of a next level to gleaning too. And Chad talked about this last week called leaving the corners. So if you imagine like a rectangular shaped field, um, they were instructed to kind of harvest a big circle in that, okay? And that would leave these corners that in my head look like little kitty cat ears or something right there and there um, that would be unharvested. So then the folks who were hungry could come and literally just harvest the food, not even glean. It was an amazing form of kindness. And Boaz was a man who believed in this, and he did this. So Ruth asked permission to go begin to glean. She's going to use a lot of her energy for her mother-in-law. She's going to go work 12 hours in a field. Um, And it says she left, in verse 3 through 7 here, and went and gleaned in the field after the reapers. And she happened to come to the part of the field belonging to Boaz, who was also of the family of Elimelech. Now behold, Boaz came from Bethlehem. So there's a lot of so happens that are going to go on in the field. Okay, Ruth goes out to glean and she just so happens to stumble into Boaz's field. I kind of think it's not a coincidence. Um, Boaz just so happens to be visiting the field from Bethlehem that day. I don't think that's a coincidence. And they meet... And there's a connection. And for three months, Ruth is going to continue to glean in Boaz's fields from the barley harvest in March through the wheat harvest in June. And Boaz is going to be amazingly kind to her. He's going to say, hey, stay in my field. It's safe. You're welcome here. Again, very patriarchal society. Women weren't always treated the best. He's like, stay here. And initially, she's there, and, and it's almost comical. Boaz begins to tell his friends, his, his workers, hey, drop some extra grain. Sorry, there's a microphone there. Drop some extra grain. You know, and it's almost comical. Next time, he's like, just drop the whole bag. And then eventually, he's just handing Ruth, like, bushels and bushels of grain to take home. Um, and there's this connection. And over three months, Ruth gets to see how kind and generous Boaz is. And Boaz gets to see... What kind of woman that Ruth is that she would sacrifice all of this for her mother-in-law. And then, in a very uh, patriarchal society and patriarchal story, there's a Sadie Hawkins dance moment where Ruth proposes to Boaz. She says, hey, will you step in and be my kinsman redeemer? Will you step in and help me and my mother-in-law? And he does. And cool things are going to come out of that. But um, the first thing I want to think about here is that Boaz didn't have to leave the corners, right? Like it wasn't mandated. He would not get in trouble if he didn't. And certainly they're very valuable. They're coming out of a famine. Every, Every piece of grain would have been almost priceless 
but he, he chooses to leave the corners, okay? And there's, there's a lot of intentionality in that, okay? He is choosing to make a sacrifice in this bucket, in the money bucket, which is going to free him up to have a surplus in the time and energy bucket. And you're going to see the result of that in his relationships. He has a great relationships with his workers. As you read the whole book of Ruth, he greets his workers, he works with them, he eats with them, he, they're working all night long and they all sleep in the threshing floor. Like he's a good guy. And that same sacrifice of not cutting the corners is going to give him the margin and time and the so happen to show up at the field to also meet Ruth. And that's our, our last way that we can begin to repaint our family portrait is to leave the corners. And right now, as you think about your barley field, whatever that is for you, whether it's home, work, away, are you harvesting corners you don't have to? Are you squeezing work and production into every last second of every last minute of every last day at the expense of the people you love the most? And trust me, I'm a youth pastor. I get it. There's times where you have to do that just to pay the bills, right? There's seasons where your boss is like putting the thumb down on you and you're like, oh, I've got to produce. I totally get that. But there's, other, there's been other times in my life where I've harvested the corners for other reasons, perhaps for identity, right? You can harvest the corners because you're like, well, I'm just known for being a closer. Like I'm the man or I'm the woman at work. People respect me. They follow me. They might even fear me. That doesn't happen at home. To my kids, I just get bald jokes, right? Like, they don't fear me. Um, or maybe it's, uh, I'm harvesting the corners for security. Where I'm like, man, if I can just harvest the corners for another 10 years, then I'll have another zero on the end of my retirement account. And, and I know my kids are young, but this is really for them anyway, right? Or maybe it's just easier to harvest the corners at work than it is to tend to the field at home. Maybe there's some brokenness there that needs some tending. Well, Boaz leaves the corners, and you can see the difference in his relationships. And to be honest, it changes history. Um, There's a child born from this marriage. A few verses into that, it says, And they called his name Obed. He is the father of Jesse, the father of David. So as we begin to see these brushstrokes painted and layered, you begin to look at the family portrait that was so marred and broken with Elimelech and Naomi, and it begins to take on a new look. That it is going to be one of the most important family portraits of all time. That Obed is the great, 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 great to the 30th power, grandfather of Jesus. That the Messiah is going to come through the unlikely marriage of a Moabite widow and an aging Jewish landowner. The small brushstrokes along the way just keep adding up to this masterpiece that we're going to see. I love this quote that it came across about this idea of genealogy being cool and being able to see what God's doing. It says, um, God's hand is all over history. God works out his purpose generation after generation. Limited as we are to one lifetime, Each of us sees so little of what happens. A genealogy is a striking way of bringing before us the continuity of God's purposes through the ages. The process of history is not haphazard. There is purpose in all. And the purpose is the purpose of God. 
I think so often when I look at my life, I don't always understand the genealogy along the way, right? Like some things are hard. They just are. Um, and, and I often feel painted into the corner. And that's not even the coolest part of this, that, that Obed is the great-great-great-grandfather of Jesus. The coolest part is that Jesus is the fulfillment of that kinsman-redeemer, that, that Boaz, his kinsman-redeemer role is just a shadow of the real thing that would come in Christ for us. That in the same way that Boaz would step in to save and redeem Naomi and Ruth, um, Christ has done that for us. Because I don't know about you, but I often find myself feeling like Ruth and Naomi, where I feel cornered, and I can feel kind of empty, like Naomi says, and I can feel kind of bitter, like Naomi says, and there's times where I feel broken. And the best news ever is that the God of the universe, he looked down at the family portrait of humanity. He looked down at the self-portraits of humanity, and he said, you know what, I'm going to repaint those. Like, I'm not happy with them. I'm going to repaint them. And he took a huge step, leaving heaven, coming to us. It says in John, it says, the word became flesh and dwelt among us. That God literally leaves the comforts and beauty of heaven to step into our corner each of our corners. And then he allows himself, Christ allows himself to be painted into his own corner relationally. That includes a cross so that he can literally pour himself out for us so that we could know him, so that we could have our family portraits repainted. You see, life is all about relationships. If you've ever sat with someone in a uh, hospice room or a hospital room, um, towards the end, things come into amazing clarity. There's no more talks about revenue reports or uh, financial reports or climbing the corporate ladder. There's simply just talk about love and the relationships of a lifetime. And if you remember nothing else from today, which is pretty possible, (laughs) uh, remember this, whether you are eight or 80, or anywhere in between, or before or after, um, you are amazingly loved by the God of the universe. That, that he stepped out of heaven and into our world to literally be able to repaint our family portraits. But it takes a step. Are you, are you willing to take a step no matter where you are on the journey, no matter what Moab you find yourself in, no matter where you are as you're heading towards the horizon? Because God will meet you there. I'm going to pray for us. Um, God, thank you that you were not content to leave us broken and helpless. You were not content to leave us orphans, that you stepped into our world and that with your help we can begin to repaint our family portraits. I just pray you give us the courage to do that, give us the wisdom to do that. Help us to pour ourselves out Help us to leave the corners and and help us to step towards you. In your name, amen.